Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by Jin Yumi, the man with golden corn, the laoban of everyone's favorite work unit, Danway.com. Jin Zong, nihao. Lao Guo, nihao. So today on Seneca, we are going to be rectifying names. It's a, a whole session devoted to words and phrases sometimes used by China watchers and in Anglophone media outlets, for which definitions may be unclear or ambiguous, or over which there's been some controversy or disagreement. The rectification of names, or Zhengming, is of course an important doctrine in Confucianism because it is only when the right names for things are used that you can have harmony within society. So this is all about maintaining. Harmony within the community of China watchers. So Jeremy and I whipped up a quick list of some of those words, and、uh, here's what we came up with: Fifty Center. Has this become an unfair rhetorical device?、Uh, hardliner. What the hell does that actually mean? Reformer or reform, a perennially problematic word.、Uh, the new left or neo Maoists. Are, are there really any of these in leadership? What do they mean? How do they define themselves?、Uh, Chinese characteristics. What the fuck?、Uh, Regime. I mean, does that connote illegitimacy? Is it too value laden? The middle class. Do we actually mean the upper class when we say the middle class?、Uh, Confucian. I mean, what do people say when mean when they when they call China a Confucian society?、Uh, <clears throat> words like rubber stamp, which is often used in March every time the NPC convenes and and outroll these stories saying China's rubber stamp parliament. Anyway, so I, I put this list up on Facebook and asked for some contributions from people who who follow the the、uh, the Cynica page or my own, and、uh, I, I decided that well, I got well I got lots of great contributions.、Um, I want to limit it this time to talking about words as used by China watchers and not、um, problematic or ambiguous Chinese words. So we're throwing out harmonious, we're throwing out scientific, no peaceful rise, no hurt the feelings of the Chinese people, and we'll probably even toss away Chinese characteristics this time.、Uh, but there were, like I said, some terrific suggestions that we might want to discuss today if there's time. Those include totalitarian and authoritarian,、uh, propaganda. Uh, which of course has very different connotations in English and in Chinese. I mean, are we right to to, to translate Xunchuan uniformly as propaganda?、Um, Gorbachev, as in where is China's Gorbachev, or Xi Jinping is no Gorbachev.、Uh, nationalism, which of course has sinister overtones and falls on the ear of someone in the liberal West, but not quite the same valence in China or in other parts of the developing world. Words like princeling, communist and socialist, dissident or activist. Uh, great firewall.、Uh, these are some some excellent suggestions that that, that rolled in,、um, and、uh, I think many of them are going to spark good ideas for future shows. So today we are delighted to welcome Roger Kramer of the China Copyright and Media blog. Now, Jeremy, take a crack at pronouncing his name correctly.、Uh, Roger. Rochier, Rochier, Rochier. Is that right,、Rochier. Roger? Yeah, that's about right. Rochier Kremers. Glad to be here.、Uh-huh. Yeah, great. Well, well, welcome here. So,、um, Rochier、uh, <laughs> is、um, is the author of the China Copyright and Media blog, which is an online resource providing access to an insight into Chinese law and policy regarding public communication. It's probably best known though for the very workmanlike <clears throat>、uh, translations that he has to do all the time. I mean, it's a place to go for translations of important party pronouncements and. Regulations that are related to media, uh, uh, Roger. I'm just going to go with Roger. Roger, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> it's easy.、Um, you're a postdoc. That's that's correct. Yes.、Um, a, a research officer at the Program for Comparative Media Law and Policy at Oxford, 
uh, at the Center for Sociolegal Studies there. Uh, so yeah, great to have you finally. Well, glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, you're very welcome. And then we were also joined this week by Seneca regular David Moser, who is academic director of the CET program here in Beijing. David is f known far and wide for the breadth of his intellectual interests and uh, is particularly dear to me because we just agree on so many things so much of the time. <laughs> so thanks. But it's, but it's David Moser today. Oh, David Moser. <laughs> David Moser. <laughs> okay, so before we dive in and start discussing this long litany of, of, of problematic words, I, I want to talk a little bit with Roger about the work that you do about the blog and the thankless task of translating all these turgid documents written in this archaic party speak. Uh, how did you get? I mean, it, it's a great blog. Can you can you share everybody uh, the URL of the blog with everybody? It's well, it's uh, http colon slash slash copyrightandmedia.wordpress.com. You'll need a VPN from inside China, though, right? Copyrightandmedia at wordpress uh, dot wordpress dot com. Yes. Right. Um, and you've been doing it for how long now? Well, I've started sort of doing it in 2010. Um, it came from when I was doing my PhD, which was about piracy in China and and sort of the legal. And market, uh, market environment in which that takes place. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to write about this, I might as well find out what the legal environment is in terms of primary sources, in terms of what are, in fact, the rules that shape China's media market. And so I thought, naively, I'm going to discover a few documents that tell me what's what. And what I found instead was this sprawling, continuous deluge of higher level documents, lower level notices, ministerial circulars that keep coming out on, on, a, on a sort of on an unending basis. And so I thought in order to sort of get a decent sense of what that's on, I'm going to need to really dive into this enormous corpus and deal with it. Now, I read Chinese, but I read it much more slowly than I than I read English. And so I thought I might as well translate them so that a I can come back to the documents later and, and work through them much more rapidly in English. And two, when you translate something, it actually forces you to read it much more meticulously. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. To, so just to ensure that I that I at least had to think about the nuances and think about how I would translate certain terms. Um, and then I had this entire stack of translations and I thought, Hey. Well, I'll share them with everyone, right? Yeah, I mean, it's taxpayers' money. Might as well provide a public service. It's funny that you you dived into something that we Chinese people avoid scrupulously, which is getting bogged down in doing boring translations of party documents, which we've all done uh, oh, to make me. money at some, at some point or other. <laughs> it's amazing that you actually do that willingly. Well, I understand that. Uh, Dunway was started partly with that aim in mind of translating uh -huh. boring documents that nobody else wanted right. to read because there's a lot of interesting stuff buried in them right. if you read them carefully. Absolutely. And it sort of it comes back to a couple of episodes ago, you had this discussion on the podcast of what's the role of academia. And I think this could very well be it. It is that this sort of work, I'm quite sure that there is no market solution for these sort of things to be provided on a regular basis. But at the same time, there's a lot of interest. Um, sort of I'm looking towards getting about 50,000 page views on the blog this year which were very niche very academic very sort of dry thing is is quite good yeah it's not bad at all and so to me the point is this is what partly we are for to provide that public service in providing consistent and hopefully intelligent um, insight into what is going on as well as the encyclopedic work may I say so I agree with you 500 percent yeah I mean, it's a it's a terrific service I, I think um I know that you were the first person probably out the gate with a translation of the decision from the third plenary session 
And still so far the only one. There isn't even an official translation that the Chinese government published. Okay, okay. How much of that was just Google Translate, though? <laughs> Nothing. Okay, good, good for you. Very good. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. Guys, uh, <laughs> hey, come on, you know, hey, I, I listen, man. I, I right, you work so for slowly. you work for Baidu, so that's right, 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 that's right. the way you roll, right? Yeah. Got it. It's fine. Like, I, I, you know, I treat it as I'm testing our product. I'm yeah. going to test Baidu Translate all the time. I know. I, I'm a more of a handcrafted person myself. You know, artisanal translations. You know, well, in, in translation, uh, I mean, what, one thing that you have to wrestle with, of course, all the time is using the right word. And that's what we're talking about today. Although we're not talking about, like I said, the Chinese words. So, so let's jump right in and let's just go down our, our, our very long list. I think some of these we can knock off fairly quickly. And I'm just going to do them in order that I read them. Let's do start it. with 50 let's Center. So 50 Center, I, I had an argument online with James Palmer uh, over his use of, of, of the word on a Facebook. I mean, he's writing in Facebook about why there's so many 50 Centers on the Wall Street Journal's blog. Or uh, yeah, on the real time blog there, and I, I said tisk tisk, you know, let's let's not use that word, and and it started quite a, a a lively debate over whether it was appropriate to use that in what context it's appropriate to use. What do you guys think, Fifty Center? What what did it mean in that context on the Wall Street Journal blog? You mean you mean Chinese Chinese commentators, commentators or just Presumably or Chinese just, commentators? Yeah, okay, because right? I thought you were extending it to just uh, you know obsequious, uh, you know, uh, Anyone paid. Yeah, but but that that may be the use in which to, to which some people put the word. Right. It means it, it has come to mean anyone who will mount a vigorous defense of a Chinese government policy in an international media platform. Is that what you mean? And the yeah. point is, it's dismissive. It it almost mean it almost means you can ignore what this person said because he is essentially paid by the government. To That's say right. This. It's well poisoning. It, it basically says this person. Uh, is is insincere in what they're saying. They 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 it imputes an insincerity to uh, whatever is said by this person. Right now, I think I, I let me let me first say I believe there are fifty centers. I believe there are paid commenters, and we we know this to be the case. We've we've had people come forward and say, yes, I was one, and here's what how my how how, how I rolled. This is how I I did my work. But it, it has become I've used this this phrase many a time uh, a broad spectrum pejorative. Right. And then what would you make of somebody, say, like the editor of the Global Times, Hu Xijin, who is many people on the Chinese internet will say is a, like a gaoji wu maodang, you know, like a high level 50 center. Is that a fair use of the term? Or no, I don't think so. Because he is, in fact, paid by the government. Right, so but he's not paid specifically to hold He's paid more than 50 this, cents, though. So. And he's, he's, he's not paid specifically to hold a an opinion. And it, he's shown that he has uh, some breadth of opinion, I mean, some depth to him as well. He. He, he does know, I, engage well, intellectually. He's not just a, a shill. A shill. That's right. It also feels to me 50 center must be someone who's not that high level. It has to be like an emissary, someone, a, a, you know, a mercenary soldier and not rather than one of the, you know, someone a in, an editor. A pawn. Yes, absolutely. The sort of the image that you get is a, spo- a sort of spotty kid somewhere in a room in front of a computer right. with Nanjing, Avenge Nanjing posters on the right. wall. Right. And part of the sting is that it's only 50 cents. So you're obviously like a little script kitty kind of propagandist right. tool. Okay. I think we're all in, in large agreement that it's it's probably not an appropriate word just to, to bandy about in it's too dismissive that it's But there but but I think there is there there is an earnest problem here, which is that how do you then engage with this sort of, of discussion? Or is it just impossible to have because if we sort of step away from that, they're they're paid to do this. I have no doubt that there are many young, you know, the Funqing who 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 are in fact very nationalist and who you do see on many China-related, 
newspapers, blogs, say, you know, defend, defending their country right. quite vigorously and, and very often irrationally. So, so do we then say... Call them know, what you just did. Fenqing, you can call them, you know, you can even call them things like, you know, uh, red guards, right? Mm-hmm. But how do you talk to them? Or you or just boxers. Can't. I mean, that, there are all, all sorts of other... We don't care words. how you talk to them tonight. We just okay. care what you call them. Yeah, well, we don't but, care how you So talk those them. people, you don't call 50 centers because we have no evidence they're being paid. Right. Even though we can call them other things because they're very annoying and like you, you know, well, the Economist, the Wall Street Journal, uh, the Financial Times, the New York Times. Not so much the New York Times because I think they moderate their comments, but the, all the papers that don't moderate their comments have this crew of people who will reflexively push out a, a line. And I'm not saying they're being paid, but it, it's very uh, amusing. Sure. But let's not forget and, one thing. Oh. I mean, we're talking a lot about foreign media here, but the main place where these people operate is Chinese media. The real 50 cents. That's right. Yes. That, that's right. I mean, uh, that was another another part of the question. I don't think that they are as prevalent, of course, on English language media. There's been some debate over whether they actually even bother to, to pay them to, 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 to show up there. I, I tend to think that they're probably not very common there at all. But let, let's move on. We, we do have a long list to get through, so let's move on. Our, our, our second word of the night is hardliner. What does the word hardliner mean? Is a hardliner, I mean, maybe I can, I can throw out a, 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 a definition. Somebody who takes a, a politically conservative position on issues both of, of state power relative to the individual and of uh, sort of stridently, assertively um, uh, hawkish in foreign policy. Is that fair? I, I would I would say that there is something about they're uncompromising. They are very rapidly willing to seek confrontation. That um, and and there is a group of Chinese politicians, and you find them very often at high levels. For example, of the PLA, there is the famous uh, Dai Xu, who who at some point imputed that the United States were bringing uh, bird flu, I think it was, sure. into China to to create or Liu genocide. Yan or, or, or yeah. some of these other uh, other generals who who have sort of made a name for themselves by 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 striking really. Um, aggressive postures right but if they were american maybe you just call them batshit crazy <laughs> but, but but then the question is if a senior u.s army of, uh, officer would go on record saying something like that about a large strategic competitor what would happen to them career-wise right well i mean what happened to ronald reagan when he he, he made that open open mic gaffe about bombing beginning in five minutes uh well Hardliner strikes me as a word that's usually used as an epithet by uh, liberals or free thinkers or those against what are perceived as conservative rearguard or retro uh, thinking, uh, you know, officials and stuff like that. It's so not do, a word. It's not a word that's used by conservatives against, uh, you know, the opposite camp, even though they may be equally uh, dogmatic. Or equally, so it's uh, upper west side speak for those in Iran and China we don't like. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a. So do you think it has a place then in 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 the discourse? Uh, I well, because discourse tends to be you know in the West anyway. It's you, you heard it back during the Tiananmen Square stuff, the incidents, right? right? The hardliners versus what versus the people who were not hardliners, were not stubborn, meaning the people who were cooperating with us. But Deng Xiaoping and those people and Zhao Ziyang were just as dedicated to their cause as were the, the people who didn't want to, to go that, that direction. We call the others hardliners because we saw them as not co- cooperating with us. So is Xi Jinping a hardliner? I mean, we've seen that he's he's a very statist. We've seen that he's sort of hawkish, uh, but he's also apparently quite committed to economic reform. Is he a hardliner? I mean, do we ever, ever talk about economic hardliners? 
No, we don't, right? No. So, I, I mean, that, that becomes problematic for me. Mm-hmm. I think, honestly, the term is meaningless. Okay, okay. This is coming from Jeremy here. <laughs> what about, um, and related to this, um, the new left, neo-Maoist, these two words. I mean, who, who are prominent thinkers who would comfortably be classed as part of the new left? To me, this is pretty clear. Maybe I should check yeah. this as Roger sure. first. But, like, new left for me is people like Wang Hui, who are exactly. serious scholars, Hui, yeah. who approach uh, Chinese uh, politics and economy from a left, leftish perspective that is not necessarily bound to traditional Marxism or Leninism or Maoism, but see that the state should in some ways provide for uh, the people. Right. The state should provide for the people. They also believe, uh, for exa- example, that in... Uh, more income inequality or income equality in addressing issues of income inequality, right? Yeah, and and that you know free market capitalism is not the be all and end all. And then the, the, to me, the the neo Maoists are a very small group of people essentially in China. The real neo Maoists who actually right. Right. hearken, who think that we should go back to like old school Maoism. Right. And it's a tiny group of people who are used and abused by people like Borsi Lai, who sometimes use their rhetoric and their nostalgia for political purposes, right. but are not actually genuine neo-Maoists. And, and these sm- this small group have actually been censored at, at various times, even have their websites shut down. That's right. Whereas, the, whereas the, the new left, probably not so much. Was Utopia a new left website or was it a neo-Maoist? Ma- neo-Maoist. Yeah, Neo-Maoist, right. And what about Kong uh, Qingdong? Peking University professor is he a I is he a new ma- is he a, well the technical yeah, term for him is batshit crazy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or or this lady um, Yang Yang Xiaoqing who wrote the op-ed uh, in the uh, the the red flag manuscripts the on there is the the democratic people's governance system and then there is the constitutionalist system this was back in the spring the whole right. constitutionalist the debate it's it's interesting to see that many of my chinese friend told, uh, friends told me that she is essentially a not a very well-known scholar, but someone who wrote something that was useful at a particular time to make a particular point, which is the rejection of the Western model. Very good. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that one's less ambiguous now. I think that I, I don't see that these phrases being conflated or, or abused too often, right? I think it's still a technical Conflation term. Still happens, it it still has a meaning to it. It still has a referent. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's get on to the, the, the really the, the really tough the toughest ones. Reform. This is one that I've debated again and again. What the hell does reform mean in the Chinese context? Or is it ever an acceptable thing to call somebody a reformist without appending an adjective to it, like a political reformer or a an economic reformer? Well, every everyone in the leadership is a reformer. If they weren't, they wouldn't be in the leadership. In this leadership, right. <laughs> that's, that's the whole point. When you look at Gai Ge, it means something like improvement for the better. And and it's very often in the, in, in the Chinese discourse, it's placed in a sequence which is revolution, construction, reform, which is part of this whole historicist transition towards harmonious society, Chinese dream, great rejuvenation, (coughs) communism, call it any sort of the utopian end stage of history when China will be developed. Mm -hmm. And we got a timeline for this, it's 2050. But we have a more, uh, I mean, but there's a a, a more concrete uh, real world definition that's applied. When, when, when China watchers use the word, word reform, they're they're talking about reform vis-a-vis pre nineteen seventy nine China. Exactly, um, but but that's but that's the whole point. It's where it, it's where you you're then able to say people who want things to change, but that's an entire scala from small incremental reforms on notions of efficiency to what we would I think what we really mean when we say reform is 
China becoming more like us also at the sort of constitutional <laughs> right. level. Right. I think there is also some confusion stemming from the 70s and 80s and 90s even when anyone who wanted change from what was before could find themselves in sympathies with other people who wanted change, no matter whether you wanted rock concerts to be you know, not monitored by the police or you wanted more capitalism, you wanted more market economy, economic forces, and you tended to be shoved in the same corner. And I think what's different about China now from back then is that you're not necessarily in the same corner. The mar people who want certain kinds of market forces are perhaps completely opposed uh, philosophically and politically to the people who want political reforms. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in other words, what you're saying is that then it is in important that we append that adjective. To I think it, we deploy the word it's meaningless. Reformist in China. I mean, first of all, show me one. Well, I, I know phrase. I know what is meant but when it, somebody says he's an economic reformer. I understand what somebody means when they say he's a political reformer. Fair uh, enough. Right. But without that adjective, it's meaningless. Okay. And yeah, especially since uh, reform, strictly speaking, you know, we could say that that Xi Jinping. As, uh, or Hu Jintao, let's say, was, was being a reformer when he was trying to introduce this notion of a more hexia uh, shohui, where, where the mod modulating the excesses of the of the of income inequality and stuff like that. That's that's an that's an effort to reform, but it's but it's not exactly uh, how can you put it? It's not moving in the it's not moving in a, in the same direction as they were moving before, which was just you know laissez-faire capitalism. Okay, so. That's a, that's, he's an he's a economic reformer in that sense. I'm going to move on to the next word, the word regime. Is this an ever, ever an acceptable uh, word to be used in place of the leadership, the government? Is that seems to be purely pejorative. pejorative. It's, it seems to be purely pejorative. It's like the word ilk. Ilk. It's like the word ilk. Right, that, that has, like, and his ilk, right? It, it just doesn't mean his kind. It means his, his, his unclean kind, his... his yeah, exactly. What, what, yes. I, I I sometimes use it in a in a different sense, as uh -huh. in a, a particular set of rules that govern. Well, yeah, yeah, no. When, yeah, yeah, when yeah, I'm yeah, talking, I, I know that, that's important. Like you know, the intellectual property regime. Yes. Right. Right. For example. But 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 there's a question. Indeed, um, what are good words to use? Because they all come with certain meanings attached. Sure. The leadership is a small group of people. The party is 85 million people. Right. Beijing is a city. So so how so. I want to say there are many more words that you can use to to use a particular meaning, and I would never use regime. But it's it's sometimes very difficult to find the exact right word for what it is you want to that's, say. That's a very good point. I mean, and, and Beijing as a metonym doesn't always work. I mean, sometimes it's conflated. Somebody, a uh, smart, very smart person on my Facebook page, Matthew Stinson, was pointing out regime. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Beijing is often used uh, to stand for China and not for uh, the government of China. Uh, Beijing as a metonym for Government of China to me is acceptable, as we say, Washington, uh, but not to stand for the American, or, you know. Yeah, but it's usually associated with an era and also with a group of people. So the word we, we would use in, in think of what we do in English with, you know, the Nixon era or the or under the Nixon government or right. under the Bush government. We use words like that. You wouldn't say unless you're preserved. We you say we have, we have administration to use. Administration I mean, we is can a sometimes good word. do that. We can yeah, say the yeah. Xi administration, yeah. the Who and When administration. Right. Yeah. I quite like that one actually because it's it's perfectly true they are administering the country and it's it neutral. doesn't it's, it is neutral. Okay, so we're in in broad agreement then that regime connotes illegitimacy then. And uh, and 
influencer. Right. More than illegit illegitimacy, I think regime connotes you know dark acts in the night, right. malevolent yeah. intentions, okay. the Qaddafi regime, yeah, the apartheid regime. regime. It r reminds me of uh, um, meeting a like a punk guy in in I think the late eighties in London. And when he found out I was from South Africa, he said, you guys got a great regime down there. <laughs> <laughs> so, and and that, to me, it was like what regime, you know, connotes and denotes. Very good. Um, the next one, middle class. Does that, is that me? When I say that to you, Roger, what, do, do, you, do, you, do you think you have a good sense of who the middle class in China is? Well, living in Britain, where, where the word middle class was invented, it's, it's actually in a way opposite. The word middle class in the British sense comes from when you, you have the, the Industrial Revolution and you have this new class of people who the upper class didn't have to work for an right. income and the working class didn't have property. And so suddenly you have a group of people who are wealthy enough to own, pro working class, right? to own property, but who are not wealthy enough to essentially live off their money or, or live, live off the, the labor of someone else. And, and in that sense, it seems to me that at the current stage of, of, of socioeconomic uh, development where China is now, if you take that into account, it seems somewhat opposite. Yeah, I, I take your point. I mean, that's that's very good. I guess the problem that I've always had was that it, it statistically, at least not until very, very recent years, it wasn't a meaningful number of people who could be described that way. I mean, who, who were actually, you know, working class people who, who were propertied. Uh, there, there just simply weren't very many of them. The average income was still quite low. And so I'd always found that when people said middle class, what they really meant was quite upper class. I mean, people who were, you know, earning... Uh, you know, six figures in, in, in RMB or, I mean, in, in, in U.S. dollars, RMB equivalent, um, which, which to me in China simply really meant upper class. Jeremy, do you? Well, I think that things have changed enough that there is a significant group of people whose uh, daily needs and aspirations uh, are very similar to what we'd call a middle class in Europe mm. or, you know, United States. I mean, people who... Yeah, I mean, they have their own property, but they can't retire. I mean, right. and they can buy shit on Taobao all day. And they can go to Paris on vacation, even though they're not rich. Uh, that, that's a big group of people now. And, I mean, as a as a filthy businessman, I mean, that's I know that. I mean, that's real. That's why a lot of companies make money in China now, right. because there are enough people so who do Starbucks that. Starbucks raison d'etre. Yeah. Exactly. I spent the entire afternoon working in a very, very pleasant coffee bar in Wudaoko, which simply wasn't there when I studied at Beida nine years ago. Was it? Which one was it? Man. It's oh, oh, oh yeah. Man, yeah. Man is very Man, nice. Yeah, that's yeah. a very good. I, I was there on Sunday afternoon, the one in, in Sanlitun here, uh, right by Gongti. Uh, also, I don't think we started using the word middle class. I mean, I remember in the mid, late 90s, we started saying China now has a burgeoning middle class. And they began to use this because it, it looked like our middle class in the way that Jeremy just described. They had a car, they had, they bought a house, and, and so on and so forth. Hmm. So, and it's, I think it's, no, it's interesting to note that the Chinese term that was more operative before that was this, this word xiaokang. Yeah. If they weren't really, as, you know, going for the middle class in our sense, they wanted to well get, off. yeah, comfortably well off, which is considerably below, considerably below what we would uh, call middle class. Sure, uh, Xiao Kang uh, yeah. income was you know four thousand U.S. dollars yeah. or five thousand. But whereas a middle class, goal. I think, I mean, to me, if you're middle class, you know, you 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 or your your ilk, <laughs> you or your people <laughs> own, own some property. You're not yeah. just yeah, yeah, yeah. or stand to own some property. Or stand to own some property. You're so, invested in the whole system okay this is why kaiser has this misapprehension about the middle or this feeling that it, that it denoted the upper class 
because most of the people were still Xiao Kang level. And then they had this other thing that we call middle class. Right. And Xiao Kang and middle class, in a way, refer to different things. Xiao Kang is about the satisfaction of needs. Mm-hmm. You have yes. a house, you have food, right. you, you have... Chicken in the oven. Exactly. Some dumplings, at least. Exactly. Um, whereas middle class is really also talking about... Consumer. social uh, Consumerism, Consumer mm-hmm. as well as um, socioeconomic stratification, which is also something that's new again or, or, or coming back. That's right. That's a, a very good distinction. Thanks, Roger. That was great. Uh, what about Confucian? We we bandy this word an awful lot, uh, around an awful lot. We talk about China's and uh, essentially Confucian society. Do we use it in the same way that we describe, say, modern North America or modern Europe as Christian? I mean, that it has this substrata, or that that, that those values are the ones that fundamentally inform their worldview. Uh, they may not be current, but I mean, I I, I actually. When when somebody says Confucian without context, I I get it. I, I feel like I there is something that resonates with me, and, and there's something uh, about Confucianism that that still I think describes. Uh, but what the is it then? Because it's, it's hard to. It, uh, that's my my problem with it is it's it's very very hard to articulate. It seems to be used across a wide range of meanings. As in some some people will use it pejoratively and say you know China's Confucian in the sense that it's backwards, hierarchical, with a docile masses overlooked by. Um, some people will will know a bit more about Confucianism and think of it in terms of harmony and order. Well, I use it in both in both senses, just as I would would say America is Christian in in both the good and bad. Exactly. And, and looking at it in historical terms, there's this interesting juncture uh, in Confucianism when philosophical Confucianism, which is largely based on reciprocity, changes into state Confucianism through, uh, uh, through the Han Dynasty, where it becomes state Confucianism. And there's a, there's a wonderful line in the Simon Lace translation of the Analects. Uh, he, he's written a, a, a wonderful comment on it, where he says, at that point, very often the reciprocity, especially of, of citizens versus the state, went out of the door, where the mandate of heaven meant you need to be a virtuous ruler and care for your people. And if you don't do it well, they have, they have the right to overthrow you. But that duty to obey was maintained, mm-hmm. um, but the right to rebel was very quickly removed. And well, so course, I mean, when once we... Once it's in power, I mean, you, exactly. who, who, who reminds people liberally of the, the right, their right to rebel? Nobody <laughs> does. Uh, what about you, Jeremy? Does does Confucian mean anything to you when, when people use the word? Well, I think that there are a few uh, questions. On the one hand, Confucian is sometimes used to mean kind of like that Asian riff. How does it go? You know, it's just like Confucianism. Ah, yellow people with squinty eyes. You know, it's sort you're, of... You're uh, thinking of... Thank you. Sorry, to be clear about it. Yeah, please say that again, Dave. The Chinese motif. I think it's often used just as a similar marker. Now we're talking about, you know, Koreans or Chinese or Japanese, basically. Um, and as such, it's often a completely empty cliche. Um, but I think that there is a set of meanings that is, it's used for that is a kind of a stereotype, but nonetheless is a, a stereotype that does have some significance, which is some kind of authoritarianism, deference to a powerful ruler, but that the ruler should be more or less benevolent if the whole system is to I work. Think it is, you know, it's kind of sexist, really. I mean, patriarchal you know, and clannish. It's patriarchal, mm-hmm. it's clannish. clannish. Yeah. 
uh, it, it, it's particularist. Very, it focuses on on uh, education and particularly a, a kind of education that involves a lot of discipline and rote learning, etc., etc. Self cultivation through moral through studying moral examples. Yeah. But let's not forget it was also used by Samuel Huntington in his Clash of Civilizations to describe this bit of Asia, so China, Japan, Korea, which but, doesn't make it immediately. Uh, I mean, in my mind, it doesn't it doesn't exactly. negate it. Right. I think the the it's a very multifaceted word, as you said, because it's used by China watchers, but it's used by China watchers and journalists with varying degrees of understanding and and complexity, and it, there's from everything from what Jeremy just said to some to China watchers who know precisely what Confucianism is all about. That's the problem. I, th I think it, it still has different technical meanings, but the, it's things are complicated a little bit when the Chinese government actually began to adopt it and try to promote it. And then it took it took on a new meaning for me around that time because you could no longer use it in the same way as we did before, which would denote this. Uh, it becomes a brand Confucius. Yes, exactly. Yes, temporary right. uh, presence of a Confucius statue on Tiananmen. Yeah, and exactly. The Confucius Institute. Yeah, right. the Confucius Institute. Yudan. Yeah, Yudan. Yeah. yeah, right. As soon as Yudan showed up, basically. <laughs> Um, uh, uh, yes, and let's we'll, we'll change the topic to the before one. I say something rude. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the next word on my list here is rubber stamp, which is always used to describe the NPC. Is the NPC a rubber stamp parliament? Yes. Yes. I mean, <laughs> as long as things, I mean, I think it's as long as I think it's an accurate word. Always pass by, you know, ninety yeah. plus percent. I think we can call well, it. Well, but but that's but that's sort of misunderstanding the Chinese legislative process. Before a okay, bill okay, good, gets good. to the NPC, people have been working on it for years. Usually, um, because I mean, you're quite right. China is administered. So what happens is that bills will start very often competitively within an administration that has. You know, very often they take their authority from one of the five-year plans or from a document like the third plan decision. Uh -huh. And so these will become kuti. And uh, it, it's a word like we must develop this area of the industry. We must develop the cultural industries. And so the cultural ministries will go, good, if we can harness this, we can sort of get some extra funding and, and some extra sure. personnel. So they are sail in front of this wind here. Right? Exactly. Right. So, the, so they send it out to the Central Party School or to Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, universities. They've got study groups who come up with, you know, dr ideas for a cultural industries development law. Uh, they work on it for a couple of months, uh, then it goes to the, uh, to the administrative body. And so by the time that you get it to the NPC, there's so much work in it that um, it becomes very difficult inside the system to then go, oh, no, we're not going to do it after all. Okay, so rubber stamp, though, at, at that point, I mean, it doesn't need necessarily to be pejorative. It doesn't mean that this is a meaningless uh, you know, sort of last imprimatur uh, on it. It's. I think you're you're absolutely right, and it's important that that, that people point this out. But um, but uh, without the rubber stamp going on it, it won't. I mean, they need the rubber stamp for the thing to be processed. So it's not completely meaningless. Nonetheless, they're not actually influencing the content. So if you, if you were the editorial director of of the the, the you know evil Western media consortium. Uh, that obviously runs the whole. It's pro it's, it's projection. Yeah, where we are, point. parliaments are where the political process happens, and in China, par the parliament, the NPC, is where the political process is legitimized. Ratified. Okay, legitimized. But uh, you, I think you're confusing matters here, though, because rubber stamp is still going to be pejorative, even if you even if you take that into account. You're not. Then that's not the right word for it. Then. Okay. It's a it's a maybe term. Right. It's like it, it. I should maybe just mention. You know, I think the, the the reason why this is interesting, if people are not finding it interesting. <laughs> by any chance, is is this uh, going back to this? Why are these words so important? Uh, going back to our our buddy George Lakoff, 
it might be good right, yeah, to to bring this up. These these words that you use them are loaded, and they and they, have they carry metaphorical value. They have metaphorical value, and so if you say rubber stamp, you're 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 sort of importing this semantic field that that includes sort of you know mindless bureaucracy. And, right. But and isn't it because to summarize what the MPC is in one phrase that can be in the lead uh, paragraph of right. a, a New York Times story. You, you, you want to say parliament because otherwise people don't know what the hell you're talking about. But if you say parliament without rubber stamp, you also give completely the wrong idea. So what more efficient way then, of conveying what they do at the MPC Roger's is there going to draft, than rubber stamp parliament? He's, he's going to draft a little bit of text that will be automatically inserted <laughs> uh, in, in every news piece that runs between March 12th. Right. right. Very good. Let's, let's do that. No, that, that was actually very enlightening. And I'm going to drop the use of it, or I'm only, only going to, to, to use it with that, that caveat. Except but. in cases where it really is a rubber stamp situation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, the, the next on our list is totalitarian and authoritarian. Uh, again, I'll start. I fully accept the use of the word authoritarian to describe, or even autocratic. Uh, I the word totalitarian for me has very specific meanings. And I think it, it's interesting. It I sometimes use them to somewhat differentiate between China at the height of the Cultural Revolution and China now. Whereas totalitarian, total, means you want to completely shape the course of someone's life. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously that happened. Uniform dress, uniform speech patterns, your spouse was chosen for you, your work was appointed. Whereas authoritarian is there are spaces where the government or the leadership or the regime essentially says, we don't care. We don't care what clothes people wear. We don't care who they marry. Um, But these are the lines. These are the red lines. authority in certain domains. Yes. There, I mean, are there totalitarian dictatorships that exist on earth besides North Korea today? I mean, are are there really truly totalitarian? I mean, I I suppose... uh, Eritrea may be... But not even Iran. Iran definitely not. No. uh, Not totalitarian. Uh, I mean... In 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 20th century history, there were only a handful as well. I mean, Stalin, mm-hmm. uh, St- Stalin's USSR was totalitarian, uh, and and Hitler's Germany was totalitarian. And I don't know of, of Cambodia. Cambodia, I suppose, during Pol Pot was. I mean, I'm talking about major major uh, countries. Major countries, hmm. unlike those small countries in Southeast Asia. <laughs> You're revealing a side of you, Kaiser. Uh, okay, yeah, that's it. I'm a big country chauvinist. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't have any anything to add to that one. I think we uh, maybe the 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 notion of one party. If you say totalitarian rule, authoritative rule, authoritarian rule. But one party rule is just simply descriptive and doesn't seem pejorative to sure. me at all. It seems a little bit sometimes more applicable than either of those two. And now the eight Democratic parties are going to go, hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I mean, this is a single party state. We, we understand that. Um, I said rule, not, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. coexistence. <laughs> right. I mean, uh, we, we, we've talked about this before many times on this podcast. We can talk about China as being a country ruled by a, an authoritarian Leninist party. We can call it technocratic. We can call it, uh, you know, even a, a dictatorship, if you want. Uh, no, I, I no, actually would, I wouldn't call it a dictatorship. No, because no, no. to me, a dictatorship, you need a dictator. You need a one and guy, they haven't right. had one since Maybe Mao Zedong. You know, <laughs> I applied for the job and I was rejected. So, yeah. Um, what about the phrase "the ruling elites"? Does that just denote this 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 group of oligarchs that we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, elite is, is another tough one to throw in. I mean, when you talk about the ruling elite, 
for for me, the ruling elite is 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 broader than that. It actually would include uh, even some uh, public intellectuals who who take a quite opposite tack. Often, I mean, they're they're part of this uh, elite that has basically. I mean, I think from time immemorial in China, it's always been sort of knowledge elites working uh, the pen and the sword, as it were. Uh, you know, And and, and and it's interesting to make the shift from the state to the party, where you can then refer to these nomenclature lists, which exist at the national level and then at provincial and local levels as well, That's which right. are all the party appointments that get made through the party, which include the, the org bureau, right? Yeah. Exactly, which include not just state um, state administrative positions, but also editorial uh, editors of newspapers, right. um, university heads, uh, faculty deans. That That's sort right. Of stuff. Heads of state, major state-owned enterprises as well. Yes. Yeah. Okay. What about the word propaganda? Um, I mean, I, part of the, that problem comes from, I, I, I just did this as an experiment today. I, I plugged the word Shunshan into Google Translate and into Baidu Translate, and it comes out uniformly as the word propaganda. propaganda. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that a, a, a fair and accurate translation of what Shunshan well, is? Well, it's, it's, it's important to note here that the Chinese government has officially changed the English translation of their ministry. From the Ministry of Propaganda to the Ministry of Publicity. Mm -hmm. It was quite some time ago. That was yeah. like 10 years ago, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. And, and also the, the State Council Information Office, which is presented to the outside world as the State Council Information Office, right. the state office. Uh, the Chinese for it is the Tui Wai Xuan Chuan Bu. Yeah. Right. But let's also recognize that Chinese companies will talk about Xuan Chuan to mean what we'd say advertising. Well, in, I think, in, in fact, we should, this is just a linguistic thing. Maybe some listeners don't even know. In fact, yeah, that, that the word propaganda, that the word Xuan Chuan, which you use in Chinese, is actually, it, it's actually a very broad semantic word that, that would include what we would call publicity, public service information. If, if you plan a, a Saturday night dance at the school, They'll say someone has to be in charge of Xuantra, right. which is publicity for it, right? right? And the English word propaganda was, as I understand it, the same before the Second World War. It was only after the Second World War where it came to... To, to mean brainwashing. To mean brainwashing on the part of a, you know, Political some kind of fascist state, right. essentially, or an authoritarian state. Right. But the word may be mistranslated and misused, but I, I think it is a little bit like pornography. I mean, you, you know it when you when see it. When you see it, it. Right, right, exactly. Okay, we're, we're running out of time, so we've got to skip a couple of these down here. Um, what are some of the ones that I really want to get to? How about Great Firewall? Let's, let's, let's start from the <laughs> bottom and work up. Great Firewall, how's, uh, do, do, we, do we like that word? Do we not like it? I mean, I think it's an absolutely irresistible metaphor, but I would agree with a lot of people who've said that it is misleading in a lot of ways. When people say Great Firewall to you, Roger, you don't live in China, do, do you think that they mean to include not only the ISP-level filtration of sites from outside of China, or do, they, do you think they also mean the entire domestic censorship apparatus? Um, I think very often there is a sort of confusion, and and indeed the great the great firewall. When I sometimes use it joke, jokingly, would ex would essentially mean the censorship of foreign information. Okay, but yeah, I would agree that it's misleading. Also because of you know we are concerned about our own uh, quote unquote, as in foreign reporters will talk about how their newspaper isn't accessible in China or how they can't access Facebook, and and these are primary voices from China that, that talk to broad audiences. So the fact that the brunt of, of um, internet control is domestic, 
is sort of ar arrogance where we go, if only the Chinese had access to more of our grand political right. knowledge, of our grand uh, free press, then That's they right. would it's, change. It's, it's hubris. It's, it's this belief that the truth is out there on YouTube, Facebook and YouTube, somewhere between the cute cat videos and pictures of what you had for lunch. Right? <laughs> right. And stashes of internet porn, which right. is also something for which uh, VPNs are often your, used. Your point, Roger, about the, the bulk or a lot of the, 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 the uh, control being within China is important. I think I mentioned to you, Kaiser, this afternoon, that you know Rebecca McKinnon had suggested that the change that it was a misleading metaphor and it should be changed to something like uh, the great uh, information hydraulics waterworks. Yeah, because that's such a catchy phrase. <laughs> yeah, that's a real catchy <laughs> phrase. But but it's really more descriptive because what they're actually doing is is shunting information, closing off valves, opening up, opening up yeah. certain things at certain times. It's much more of, of a flexible sort of system. It's a system of tubes. Look, I, I think the fact that people misunderstand the difference between blocking foreign sites or restricting access to foreign sites and uh, domestic internet censorship or self-censorship. I mean, that's a problem for the people who misunderstand it. But I, I think as a metaphor for the blocking of foreign sites, it's quite a good metaphor, actually. I mean, just like the Great Wall, it's not a perfect seal. It's not a hermetic seal. They build it up sometimes more when they need it, and then they let it run to ruin when they don't. It... Uh, you know, is a project that's been going on a long time. I mean, there are many, as a metaphor, it's a pretty good metaphor. I, Just I, because I, a I bunch of idiots out there on cyberspace misunderstand it, doesn't, that's not... Oh the, yes, you know, the metaphor is it's not just the idiots out there. I mean, I think that it's it's actually misunderstood by more, more than just uh, my 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 issue with it is that uh, you know it really does mislead. I mean, people the, to to there's that that wonderful phrase by Lockman Sway that it's become in people's mind a kind of Iron Curtain 2.0, right? Right. Uh, and people do imagine life behind the so-called Great Firewall as being kind of like. Uh, Eastern Europe under Soviet communism, you're standing in virtual breadlines. I, I hear that very often. I work on a project where I where I f get to bring uh, European experts over to 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 work together with Chinese academics and and professionals, and every single one of them goes. You know, you sort of expect people scowling on the streets while a Trabant-like car putters past with brown smoke coming out of it, <laughs> and you know, then they have coffee at Man. Right. <laughs> Okay, plus, let's, let's, plus, let's, let's plus Kaiser, the Great Firewall can be seen from cy cyberspace. Uh, yes, yeah, I'll use that one too. <laughs> um, what about Gorbachev? As in, you know, where is China's Gorbachev? Is Xi Jinping? Ugly? He's no Gorbachev guy. Do, do do you think that this phrase, I mean, this 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 person has any relevance? To, or is this just sort of wishful thinking? Or well, I think that some of the Chinese commentary on why uh, China should not reform reform certain aspects of its politics is actually more frequently draws on this metaphor than Westerners. I mean, there, there's been a lot of writing in the last year about why China should not make certain reforms because they don't want things to turn to chaos. So, and, and I translated some of it. Um, there's an article on my website. That must be why I read it. <laughs> Shame, shameless self-promotion. Um, but but that all talks about that sort of even sees Gorbachev as a sort of evil person who was seduced by the foul ways of the West and so schemed to... Um, stuff the propaganda department with his own appointees and so they lost the commanding heights of propaganda right. and then they lost everything and so we must not let that happen gorbachev is your, it's it's your standard straw man foil right right he's and he's great because like any good straw man foil he can be he's used equally by both sides i mean he's it, it's it's funny i mean the if there's anything that sort of stands for uh, the difference, the way the Chinese see the world, or that so many Chinese see the world, and, and so many Westerners do, it's in the person of Gorbachev and how you know who who 
who that person represents. Uh, but therefore, I, do, I, don't, I don't think it's a meaningless uh, term like no, reformer. I think it's actually very layered with different kinds of meanings. And people may mean slightly different things, but I don't think this term is one we should abandon. But there's an interesting other aspect to it, which is that I think Gorbachev, from the European point of view, I mean, I grew up 10 miles from a NATO airbase in Belgium where there are still nuclear bombs. And there was always this sort of fear that at some point something was going to happen. The Russians were going to come over or whatever. Um, and so Gorbachev to the West was the end of fear, the opening up of, and then the end of the Soviet Union, which meant that we are not going to essentially get nuked right. by, by, by the Ruskies, by the Ivans. Um, by the what? The, the Ivans. Oh, a pejorative for Russians. Yes. Oh, Ivan. And so maybe... Just maybe, and just throwing it out there, we we are concerned about China. I won't say we're afraid of China, but it isn't something that is universally welcomed by everyone without any fear of or hesitation or trepidation. And we want someone, maybe, who 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 tells us, no, it's all right. We're going to work with you. We're yeah. going to do business with you. We see your side of the point, or or of the argument. Okay, I'm just looking at my my clock here and realizing that we're we're very much out of time. And so we're going to have to end on that one and move quickly to recommendations. Let's start with David. What do you have for us this week? Uh, I'd like to recommend a new a book by edited by Perry Link, Paul Pickowitz, and Richard Madsen called Restless China. Okay. It's a series of uh, articles and admission here. I have one of them in there okay. <laughs> on urban Buddhists. And it's uh, about the various aspects of uh, what make China restless now. There's a, there's a thing on... Uh, fear of product safety. There's something on the the TV show uh, Fei Zhang Wu Rao. Okay. There's a, something about Han Han. There's uh, something about other th- other stuff about values and religion and internet censorship and everything. Okay. So it's it's interesting. Good, good. I'll give it a read. Roger, what do you have for us? Um, I'm reading a quite fun book at the moment. It's called uh, China Whispers. It's written by Ben Chu, the economics editor at the um, Independent, who is uh, uh, half of Chinese descent. And so what he does is he, he does the same thing we're doing here. He 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 unpicks some of the myths that are often um, sp- uh, sp- you know, disseminated, propagated about China, about the work ethic, about, you know, China needs a dictatorship. Chinese people are inherently authoritarian. And he's sort of, He'd done an article version of this somewhere, right? And so he really looks at sort of how did that trope generate itself both in Western discourse through official Chinese discourse, but let's sort of try and qualify it in a historical manner as of look at it now. Um, Very intelligent, fun book. Oh, good. Uh, Both of these are books I'm I'm looking forward to reading. I've got uh, got one, which is... uh, I'm actually only a couple of chapters into it, but so far it's a very good read. It's In Line Behind a Billion People, How Scarcity Will Define China's Ascent in the Next Decade by Damien Ma, who's been on our show before, and William Adams. Uh, it's, it's quite good. Um, I, I, I recommend it highly. It's, it's, it's put together very well, and it's actually uh, written in, in very lively, very contemporary language, and, um, and it's, it's super current. It's really quite, I mean, you know, it, 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 it's into... 2013, quite quite into 2013 already. So uh, do read that one. I highly recommend it. Or right, I've got a recommendation that's uh, you know for people who live in Beijing or maybe Shanghai now that the air pollution has reached you down there, which is uh, some 
young, I think mostly American, maybe some Chinese living in Beijing have put together an air filter uh, that apparently is as good as the 16,000 yuan uh, air filters for filtering out the PM 2.5 particles, but so they're it's selling loud it for. As hell, right? is, I don't know, but it sells for 200 yuan. So if you are worried about air pollution and you <clears> can't <throat> afford a, you know, two thousand dollar rig, um, two hundred quai, and we'll post the yeah, link. I find the the, the the noise pollution, air pollution, <laughs> kind of optimized you know, zone there. Yeah, well, you know, not everyone is. Kaiser Kuo. <laughs> well, I'm not even Kaiser Kuo. <laughs> oh, you're Kaiser Kuo. I'm sorry. I forget. <laughs> I get so confused. You thought you were talking to my alter ego, Bismarck Chang. <laughs> anyway, hey, hey, guys. Th- thanks so much, David. It's great to have you again. And thanks. Roger, man, that was great, man. You're, you're, you're great at this. And, and I want to have you back in here uh, every time you're back through town. It'd be a pleasure. There's plenty of stuff you can talk to us about. Uh, and, and Jeremy, man, I'll see you next week, right? No, wait, uh, I'll be gone next week. You'll be here. Yeah. Okay, we'll you can take the helm. Yeah. We'll do something. Cool. And um, happy holidays to all our listeners, and we'll see you on the other side. Take care.